It's uh, 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if, there were, and as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord? There is no one like you, there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as his people for himself? and to make a name for himself and to, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and your blessing, the house of your servant, will be blessed forever. Morning, everyone. I add my welcome to that of Bertie. And for those I haven't met, uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Anglican. Please do keep your Bibles open. Although I will also have the words of scripture on the screen uh, from 2 Samuel 7, beginning verse 18. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Uh, we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Scriptures, and by the power of your spirit at work within us. Please, Father, uh, help us to concentrate, to set, it, set aside any hindrances or distractions that we might be built up in the faith and become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we know that prayer is an amazing privilege. Our God's the loving Heavenly Father who delights to give good gifts to his children as we ask him. And he's also the all-powerful Lord who is able to answer prayer, and he does so in accordance with his will. And yet I suspect that for many of us, we'll know from experience that prayer can at times prove difficult. And if you don't know that yet, you might in the future. It can be an area in our Christian lives in which we feel deficient, if not even despondent or perhaps defeated. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, it always strikes me that even the disciples who, being Jews, traditionally practiced morning and evening prayer and who had been close enough to Jesus to witness him praying in the flesh were yet compelled to say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so if prayer is sometimes or perhaps even often something you struggle with, then you're even in good company with the disciples. 
And so I'm pleased to say that in his word for us this morning, God, through his gracious dealings with the great King David, will give us a powerful and compelling reason for the activity of regular prayer and also a helpful reminder of why prayer is something that makes sense for us as followers of Jesus. It's my hope that in light of what we learn from God's word for us today, even if it's only to a small degree, that our prayer lives can't help but be revitalised. Now, in case you weren't here last week, when uh, we looked at the first half of this chapter, uh, James Squire battled the rain and gave us uh, not only a brilliant explanation of God's great revelation to David, but also helpfully enabled us to see it in light of God's big picture plan of salvation over the whole Bible. And uh, so what I've done is I've, uh, to keep us uh, all on the same page, I've got the super condensed summary version of that in visual form. It goes like this. In the beginning, of course, God created the heavens and the earth and the pinnacle of creation was humanity, Adam and Eve. However, it didn't take long before humanity decided, no, God, you're not in charge. We are. Thank you very much. And that's, of course, a horrible, treacherous rebellion against God. And we call that the fall. And it results in the curse of God, namely a world in death and decay. But God is gracious and kind. And so he chooses a fellow named Abram, later known as Abraham. And instead of cursing, he gives to Abraham the promise of blessing. And uh, those promises to Abraham are really integral, integral sort of part of the, the God's message overall. Um, you can read them in the first few verses of Genesis 12. He promises Abraham offspring, that he would have descendants, and eventually they become a, a great nation. A land for that nation, promised land, with the land flowing with milk and honey. And that somehow through that process, eventually blessing would be made available for all the families of the, the, the world, for all humanity. Abraham's descendants did grow and they became a nation and they found themselves living in Egypt and enslaved for 400 years. Uh, God, in order to show himself as the great God of redemption, after that 400 year period, uh, rescued the Israelites from uh, Egypt, makes for a great Disney film, and uh, he brought them out into that land that he had promised David. Now, lots of stuff happened, and Israel eventually get a king. Uh, first one was Saul, as we see in the sort of uh, first uh, Samuel, and uh, Saul was the people's choice, but David was God's choice, so David uh, becomes king after Saul, and after a whole lot of stuff happens, David finally gets rid of Israel's enemies in the Promised Land and he rules over a united Israel in a big, fancy palace. But whilst David lives in a palace, God still lives in a little tent. So David thinks it's about time he builds God a big house. That is, of course, a temple, a big permanent fixture for God to make his presence dwell in. But God says to David, just as he's thinking about that, and this is going to be the roughest paraphrase I've ever done, Matt, I don't need a temple, I'll get one later, Solomon will build it. But whilst we're on the subject, Dave, I'm going to build you a house, the same word, but of course house has two meanings, it'd be the physical building I live in, or it can be my family line, my lineage. The house of Pakula is where I come from, so David will have the house of David, God will make that happen. And uh, a descendant of David says, God will rule on your throne over my kingdom forever. Now, after that amazing revelation, we could get on with the story of the life of David and the history of Israel as we go through the book of 2 Samuel. But the, the writer or compiler of this book 
thankfully saw fit to include David's prayerful response to this wonderful news. And David's prayer gives us great insight into the character and work of God at this most significant juncture in the point, uh, this significant point of his revelation, as well as showing us the reason why prayer especially makes sense for the people of God. The first thing David's prayer reminds us of is that our God is the God of promise. To have faith in God specifically is in fact to have faith in his promise. Now our passage starts with the words, chapter 7 verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 1, it's probably on the same page in your Bible, David literally sat, I know it doesn't say that in the NIV but it is in the original, David sat in his magnificent palace but now he sits in the presence of the Lord, some, some place that's visually far less impressive than his big palace. It's a bunch of curtains with a box in it. It's a little tent which the Ark of the Covenant was placed. But that is, of course, the most impressive place in the universe for David to sit, if you've got eyes to see. Continuing from verse 18, as he sits in the presence of the Lord, he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord... You've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for all humanity. Now, I know that if you've got an NIV 11, it says it's for, all, uh, for a mere human or something like that. Uh, I really hope it puts a footnote to what is the correct translation, which is it's for all humanity. You want to ask about that issue? Ask me later. I'll tell you why it's definitely the case. But it is for all humanity. You see, just like when God's promise was revealed to Abraham, Abraham knew it was for the purpose of giving blessing to all the families of the earth. Well, so now David realises that that special singular offspring of Abraham, who would now be a king in David's line, would also be given by God as a means of blessing all humanity. It's like in the song we've just sung. God only has one big plan of salvation and it now includes someone in the line of David. It's the same plan. David just sees more of it than than what Abraham had seen. And so David is humbled and can't help but respond in praise of God's great promise. So verse 20, what more can David say to you? Metaphorically, I'm speechless, he says. For you know your servant, sovereign Lord... For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. So God's single plan, God's promise, his promised plan of salvation, now being revealed in greater detail to David than it was to Abraham, results in this humbled man giving praise to God in the presence of God. And notice that praise of God is, and this is actually more often the case than not, praise of God is praise about God. David moves to the third person, to the the we, we have heard about God's greatness 
which is why we tell of his goodness to others. You see, God doesn't actually need to hear how good he is. He knows. He knows everything. Uh, Speaking of his great deeds in the hearing of others brings him great glory. And that, more often than not, is what the scriptures envisage praise of God to be. We keep getting it wrong. We think it's, oh, well, I'm going to sort of blot out everyone else and I just praise God and I'm telling God how good he is. But that's, that's sort of unique in the Bible. Now, of course, it is right and fitting that the individual gives direct praise to God. Praise the Lord, O my soul, David would write in Psalm 103. But even then, it was designed to be sung in the hearing of others. God's name can't be any more holy than it already is. And yet we rightly pray that his name would be hallowed, that his name would be seen as holy, presumably by others. Presumably we pray that because we're the people who want others to see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. We want others to hear our praising testimonies of God and ideally turn and therefore give glory to our Heavenly Father. My wife's a pretty good cook. I like the food she makes. I can tell her that, and that probably counts for something. That's nice. If I really want to make a big deal, I tell everyone else. That's far more glorifying of her cooking ability. See how that works? So it is with God. Here in our passage, David humbles himself and praises God, not for cooking, but for God's incredible promise, in which David's family line would be instrumental and through which blessing would eventually be brought to all humanity. But it's not only God's promise that drives David to prayer, it's also the fact that this promise ensures that God's work of redemption, of of buying a people for himself, will be made effective forever. God's work of redemption will be made effective forever. From verse 23... David continues, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to form great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as a very own forever. A new Lord have become their God. You see, in the Exodus event, God was redeeming that is, purchasing out of slavery a people to be his very own treasured possession. And now he has promised that people group, Israel, that a king would rule over them forever. A king doesn't exist without a kingdom. So if God has promised that there will forever be a king on the throne of David, well, then it follows that God will forever have a people of his very own. Those he has redeemed are those he has established as his people forever. The people group that we call Israel has never and will never cease to exist. And so it is, by the way, with God's church. God's church, made up now of both Jew and Gentile, will never cease to exist. 
No communist or fascist dictator, no Islamic terrorist organisation, no materialistic, secularistic Western culture, no matter how determined and powerful these things may be, none of those things will ever be able to rid the earth of God's church. They'll try and they'll make all sorts of difficulties, but God's people have an eternal king, therefore they are an eternal entity. God himself has redeemed a people for his very own. In David's day, he did it by the powerful works of the Exodus. In our day, of course, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he has established his own people forever by ensuring that there's always a king ruling in the line of David. By the way, um, for some people, a sort of a fond verse, memory verses, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus uh, redeemed for himself a people for his very own, eager to do what is good. Um, that's kind of like the New Testament version of what David's praising God for here. Uh, we're redeemed to be his very own, and that's an eternal thing. And what's the one character description of the church? Well, eager to do what is good. But in case you're new to the Bible, in case you're new to the things of God, you might be visiting or you might be tuning in online. Now, it's both my great joy and also my duty to tell you that there is right now, would you believe, a king still sitting on the throne of David. And he is ruling over the people of God. And this king will never die, for he was raised from the dead in order to claim that throne. And so his reign never ends. His name, of course, is Jesus. And God commands you. He commands all people to join Jesus' eternal kingdom. The way to do that, of course, is to turn from living under your own rule and to living under his rule. Those who do that receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of life everlasting. There's even something of a new citizenship ceremony that the Bible gives us for those who join his kingdom. We call it baptism. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, says Peter in Acts chapter 2. You'll receive the deposit that guarantees everlasting life in the presence of God. If you want to know more about that, by the way, do make sure you scan the QR code and say something in the Connect form. I want to know more about becoming a member of Jesus' kingdom. But back to our passage, the final part of David's prayer is where we get the prayer of the prayer. You ever heard that? Is that just me or is that like a Christian thing? What's the prayer of the prayer? No, it's just me. Okay. <laughs> prayer, generally speaking, very, very generally just, just means talking to God, right? But it actually is more specific than that in the Bible. You see, thanksgiving is not prayer, but it's talking to God. Confession is distinct from prayer, but it's talking to God. Uh, praise is also distinct from prayer, but it's also talking to God. What is prayer specifically? Well, prayer is actually asking God for something. So the Bible specifies pray and thanksgiving, or prayer and praise, right? So they're slightly different categories. So prayer is asking God in particular for something. And strangely, as David comes to the prayer of this prayer, what he asks God to do is what he already knows God will do. That's interesting, isn't it? What he asks God to do is what he already knows God will To put it another way, David's prayer is in essence an expression of assent to God's promise. 
Read with me from verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. You know, it's almost like saying, let your kingdom come and your will be done so that your name will be hallowed. If God has promised that through the line of David, he'd rule by his chosen king over his chosen people forever, then there is zero possibility of that not happening. It's only ever always 100% certainty that God's word will come to pass, which, of course, it has now for us in the resurrection of Jesus, the son of David. And yet David's actual prayer is that God would do as he promised. I suspect we don't think about prayer like this nearly enough. But on the basis of God's word to us today, we absolutely must conclude that prayer is, in part at least, an expression of joyful trust in the sure promise of God. That's what prayer must be, in part at least. It is also the natural response to what God has revealed about his plan of salvation. And so, verse 27, Lord Almighty God of Israel... You have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So, that is, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. It's it's a response. God has spoken, I speak back. That's prayer. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. It's basically emphasising the same request through repetition. God, do as you promised. Do what I know you're going to do. My prayer is an expression of assent, of agreement, of being in concord, of being in kilter with your promised plan of salvation. Now, of course, in David's day, God's plan was still in the process of coming to fruition. Uh, David would grow old and die. We heard that in the first half of the chapter last week. And then someone from his bloodline in each successive generation would take over his throne. And this would be the system forever, for eternity. And so David reasoned, and we know this is the case from elsewhere in the Bible, David reasoned that eventually one of his descendants would somehow not see decay. Death would not somehow get in the way of them ruling. That he would be raised from the dead in order to rule over the kingdom eternally. But that's about the most that King David could have known. But I doubt David could have imagined that that same descendant would quite literally also be the house that God chose as his own dwelling place. For in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Paul says in Colossians. In referring to his own body, Jesus, if you remember, said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. You see, the great son of David, who was raised from the dead to prove he's the one chosen by God to rule over God's people, 
also turned out to be the true temple, the one place God chose as his dwelling for his great name. You know that wonderful little expression in the New Testament, I think it's Ephesians, God can do more than we ask or possibly imagine, right? This was beyond David, but this is what actually happened. Those who come into the kingdom of Jesus are so united with him that we can be said to dwell right now in the presence of God. We are in Christ. We're therefore in God, to use the language of the New Testament, raised up with Jesus and seated at God's right hand. And that's the case no matter how defeated or despondent you might feel when it comes to your prayer life. In David's day, the promised plan of God was still being worked out. In our day, it has been fulfilled. We have even more reason, therefore, to assent to God's promise in prayer than David. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, what he gave us was a means by which, no matter how defeated or despondent we might be, we can always express our assent to God's promised plan of salvation. As a matter of fact, when you are despondent or defeated in your prayer life, it makes even more sense to consider how Jesus taught us to pray. It's actually a very low bar. I don't know if you ever realise this about the Lord's Prayer. It's a really low bar. In Matthew 6, we can read the Lord's Prayer, and it is how to pray. It's not what to pray, which drives me mad that, you know, you've got some people think if I say the words over and over again, which is hilarious because just before Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he said, don't go on babbling like the pagans, right? You don't repeat a prayer over and over to win favour with God. That's ridiculous. It's how to pray. It's a model. But... In Luke 11, where we also get the Lord's Prayer, it's here's what to say. And sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where you're like, I just need to know what to say. Well, thank you, God, for giving us that. Its content is actually as simple as it is theologically rich. You can pray for nothing and still show your assent to God's promised plan of salvation by the first few lines, at least, of the Lord's Prayer. Speaking of which, by way of implication, let me just draw your attention to some of the things that are in it. You all know how it starts. You know, our Father in heaven, God's a loving heavenly Father who loves to answer. Our Father in heaven, we want your name to be hallowed. Hallowed be God's name. The word's a strange word. It means to be made holy or to, re- to be revered. Um, It's funny how little this naturally occurs to me. I'll tell you one of the reasons prayer is difficult. One of the reasons prayer is difficult is because, in one sense, it's unnatural. You see, my heart inclines to the old sinful way that says, I am in control. I am in charge. I decide what's good and evil. I take the role of God. That's the essence of sin. Prayer, unfortunately, by definition, can't live with that because prayer, by definition, is the admission that God is in control. God is in charge. That's why, at one level, it's an unnatural activity. However, as those who are redeemed and given a new heart, even though I struggle with the old Adam, I'm growing in my, the likeness of Jesus day by day as one of his followers... I still need to have revealed to me what is good, 
What are the good things I'm eager to do? And one of the really good things is to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It strikes me that it doesn't occur to me so often to think, dear God, I really want people to know how holy and good you are. Dear God, I really want people to come and see you as you really are. And normally it's, dear God, please give me a car spot when I show up at this busy place or whatever, you know, like... Um, I pray for my wife and the kids, please look after them, please protect them, you know, keep them growing. But I should, please God, I want people to know that you're really holy. That's hallowed be your name. The second few lines, sorry, few statements within the prayer are all kind of three ways of saying the same thing. God, we want your kingdom to come. That is, we want your will to be done as it currently is in heaven, but on earth. We want the, the day of judgment. We want tomorrow's bread today and the word in the original is give us tomorrow's bread Uh, ask me about that later as well we want the kingdom to show up we're sick of this please come lord jesus that's basically the uh, the kingdom come bit which by the way for those who are not in christ is always kind of awkward because they're actually praying judgment upon themselves when they pray the lord's prayer Uh, but for us it's a wonderful thing There will almost certainly be times of profound difficulty, sadness and grief or stress or pressure where it's only right that the Christian prays, please bring back the Lord Jesus. By the way, I thought one of the most wonderful things last week was that interview with uh, our dear brother, Mr Thomas. Did you put up your hand? Were you here for that? Did you hear that? Who thought that was amazing? Yeah, I did too. It kind of makes me want to pray that Jesus comes though, doesn't it? Yeah. After that, we actually do get the prayer of the prayer. It's only after we've prayed those things. And if you've got that far, well, that's still okay. <laughs> if you want to do more, you pray against temptation and you pray concerning forgiveness. With temptation, it's deliver us from those things. Deliver us from evil. Right? Spare us from the temptation. The temptation that Jesus refers to, actually, is almost certainly the time of testing of Israel in the wilderness. Where will we actually have God as our God? Or will we say, nah, he's not going to give us enough manna, I'm going to grab more for tomorrow. Nah, he's not going to give us water, we're going to complain and we're going to threaten to stone Moses. He's not coming down from the mountain, so you know what, we'll build a big golden calf and we'll say, here are your gods, Israel, let's worship that instead. The temptation's real. Temptation is to not let God be God. Deliver us from that because that's always the path to evil. Except in the case of Jesus, who was tempted, but never went to the path of evil. And the last thing, and this is really the, the thing that kind of hits home more personally, it's kind of moving more from God to us, both in the same sentence, is God forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's the one part of the prayer that Jesus um, gives further explanation to in the Gospels. You go, for, for if you don't forgive others, how can you expect God to forgive you? So it is about forgiveness, but it's actually more than that. It's about hypocrisy. Don't say, God, I want this from you if I really live in a way that suggests I don't want this from you. That's actually, that's to break the commandment about God's name, by the way. People think cursing God and using the word God or Jesus Christ as a swear word is, it is taking the name of the Lord in vain, right? But that's just a small version of it. Uh, You got a badge when you go to school that says, um, I've got to have a school that no one here goes to. (laughs) Um, uh, Let's just make up a school. What's a good school? Uh... St. Ben's, St. Ben's School in Whoop Whoop, 
And there's a badge that says, and I'm going to school, and it says in Ben's school. And I walk out of school and I kick some old lady and I throw eggs at a bus and I steal something from the shop and then the principal finds out and he goes, you idiot, you gave our school a bad name. Because everyone knows that you're from our school and you're acting like a dirtbag, so you've brought us into disrepute. God, I want you to forgive my sins. Well, for goodness sake, be the person who forgives other people. You see it? Don't give God a bad name. Uh, it's, it's a sensible prayer because all of us feel our own hypocrisy. I feel my own hypocrisy. I'm reading this wonderful book by Richard Baxter at the moment, the, uh, the Reformed Pastor. And he goes, you sit there telling people not to sin. Imagine you do. You know how bad that looks. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair call. Uh, Dear God, make me not a hypocrite. Make me love the things of you and therefore have that shown in how I live. That's a pretty low bar when you think about it. All of this is saying, God, I assent to what you're definitely going to do anyway. And by the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's not actually a bad thing to become one through praying the Lord's Prayer. You see, if you believe that God is God, he can forgive sins and he can bring his kingdom and you want others to see his name being made holy... You can go, well, I want to show my assent to those things. And so I will pray the Lord's Prayer. You want to become a Christian this morning? You can do that, by the way. When my wife leaves prayer afterwards, she's going to pray the Lord's Prayer. Make it your own. For now, let me conclude our time also in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your one promised plan through which all the families of the world can be blessed through the seed of Abraham, through the great son of King David, for whom death would not hold him down, but he rose uh, to inherit an eternal kingdom. And then in your amazing kindness and goodness, you extended that kingdom to both Jew and Gentile, and you've called us into it. And we therefore have the forgiveness of sins. May we, following the instructions of our great King, live to see your name hallowed, forgive others as you've forgiven us, resist temptation, flee from evil. May we, Heavenly Father, when the going gets tough, when the grief is high, still remember, even in a small way, to give our assent to what you will definitely do by way of prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.